0: To Crosspoint Church's Weekly Sermon Audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Let's get into it. First Peter chapter one. Well, this letter is written by the Apostle Peter, who was likely the source of the Gospel of Mark that we just Spent a whole 14 months in. Mark was Peter's ministry associate, and so now we are hearing Peter's theology systematized in these five chapters that are are a a, a really Peter's message to the early church that is undergoing persecution. Probably written in the early 60s A.D. Probably before the real intense persecution that happened in the life of the early church a, a few years and decades later by the emperor Nero, where he actually started to to kill and martyr Christians. At this point, the persecution and the trial and the suffering that the early church is undergoing is much like probably the persecution and trial that we undergo. It's cultural, it's, it's, it's social, there's scorn, Uh, upon the the message of of christ and you know the world has always been like it is today in a sense that it's okay if you have your beliefs but the moment that you say that those beliefs have authority on the world which is what the gospel does it's not just one amongst many it is the authoritative message of jesus the savior king who comes to lay claim on his creation that becomes controversial and so that is what is happening and paul peter is writing this letter to ground the readers deep into the faith. And one thing I love about First Peter, in just five chapters, it's kind of like a theological utility drawer. You know, everybody has that one drawer in their kitchen where you got a little bit of everything, like the scissors and, you know, the highlighters and a little stick of gum and, and some Band-Aids and a little, little thing of Motrin. You know, everybody's got one of those drawers. It's like the junk drawer. I'm not calling First Peter junk. I'm saying, though, that... That it is like a utility drawer. It's got a little bit of the whole Christian life. It's got the glory. It expounds the glory of God and salvation over and over and over again. It prepares its readers for suffering and trial, which we are guaranteed to experience in this life if we are true Christians. It talks a little bit about the gospel in marriage and husbands and wives. It talks about elders and how they should lead the church. It talks about spiritual warfare. All sorts of things that we'll look at in these coming weeks. But for now, let's read First Peter, just verses 1 and 2. This will be a bit of an introduction into the letter. Now, I want us to see three things as we go through just even these two verses that are so rich. And as we move on, we'll pick up the pace and cover larger portions of First Peter in the coming weeks. But today, just these first two verses. And I want us to see a few things about Peter himself. I want us also to notice a few things about the Christian life and then I want us to notice a few things about the Trinity and its beautiful and glorious work in salvation. So that's kind of our outline, and we'll have some notes on the screen. I want us to see some things about Peter. I want us to see some things about the Christian life that I think are just absolutely foundational. And then I want us to see some things about the glorious work of our triune God in salvation. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which those three provinces would make up modern-day Turkey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us see these beautiful truths. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name because of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. As we gather around this text today, I pray for Christians in this room that you would, as we pray so often, that you would stir our affections for the glory of God of your name through the work of your son. I pray that it would warm our hearts and make us more like Jesus. I pray for my friends in this room, and certainly there are some in a crowd this size that do not know Jesus. I pray that by your kind and eternal grace, you would call them out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus by your spirit, that you'd give them life, faith and repentance so that they today even can be born again into a living hope in Jesus. And Lord, I pray after we come around your word that we come around your table as is our custom as a congregation on the first Sunday of the month that we would remember Jesus' work on the cross and that we would worship you. Teach us wondrous things out of your word, I pray today, for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, verse one starts off by identifying the author of the book, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want us to notice just two brief things about Peter. First, I want us to notice, as, we, as we've been working through the gospel of Mark and seeing so much about Peter, I want us to notice that Peter's apostleship comes with baggage. Peter's apostleship comes with baggage. Peter was one of the twelve disciples who later became one of the twelve apostles of the church. And so when you see that word in the New Testament, apostle, it is most often, not always, but most often designating a specific one-time in redemptive history office that was occupied by the twelve disciples. So, there's these twelve disciples that are following Jesus around that are particularly close to him, And then Jesus is crucified, is resurrected, and ascended, and he gives these 12 apostles, one of them dropped out there at the end, you remember Judas, and then he's replaced by Matthias in the beginning of the book of Acts, and then we see Paul, a little bit later on in the book of Acts, getting a a, a reappearance by the resurrected Jesus, and then being commissioned as an apostle. We see these 12 and 13, and maybe one or two others that are half-brothers of Jesus, Being called in the New Testament apostles, and that is an important office. It's a one-time in redemptive history office where these men, these specific few men, had a certain authority to be the writers of the scripture that we know of as the New Testament and also to be the leaders of the early church and establish the doctrine and direction of the early church, and so these, these men have all died. So there is no modern-day apostle, right? So if you maybe grew up in a church or maybe you go to a church where somebody in that church calls themselves an apostle, kindly close your Bible, quietly exit, because there are no modern-day apostles that have this apostolic office that Peter and the others and Paul had. Now, the Bible in the New Testament does speak about Apostles of the church, but it's not talking about this authoritative office of apostle that we see Peter claiming here. So that's speaking more about the ministry of the church going to places where the gospel has not yet reached, and they're doing apostolic ministry in the sense that they are taking the gospel, being sent by Jesus, and that's literally what the word apostle means, being sent by Jesus' church to take the gospel to the entire world. And so Peter is one of these Twelve, And he has a special authority. And we are now picking up with Peter about three decades after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension. But Peter's journey was a bumpy one to be one of these apostles and a writer of Scripture. We see as we've been going through Mark that in one sense Peter was this great example of zealous courage and faith. Remember, he was the first there and... In Matthew 16, to profess Jesus as the son of the living God. But yet, even just moments later, Jesus had to rebuke him and actually called him Satan because of his unbelief in Jesus' ultimate plan to go to the cross. So can you imagine what a day that must have been? To be lauded by Jesus? Oh, yes, Peter, you're the, that confession Upon that confession, I will build my church. This hasn't been given to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then moments later, you're getting called the devil by Jesus. Talk about peaks and valleys. Peter had a bumpy ride to his role in the church. He cuts off the ear at the end of the gospel of that Gentile guard. Remember that Roman guard? Jesus picks it up and sews it back on. And then just moments later, he denies Jesus around the fire. But yet we see at the end of the gospel of John, he is restored by Jesus after the resurrection and told by Jesus personally to feed his sheep. And then it's as if Peter can't keep a good string going, then after that has a discussion about John. He's kind of like talking about at the end of the gospel of John. I mean, well, what about this guy? What about him? And, Pe- and, and he's kind of jealously wondering what his role is going to be. And he's, he's wondering how John is, what his future is going to hold. And Jesus tells him, don't worry about him, you just, you just do your thing. And so we see this mix of courage and timidity, uh, great zeal and denying Jesus. And, and I, as we've made this point, I find this strangely encouraging. So when we read these great people of the faith, realize that as Peter writes these beautiful things that we're going to encounter in these coming months through these five chapters, this is not some remote guy who doesn't have calluses on his hand and dirt under his fingernails, spiritually so to speak. This is a man who has failed miserably and is in touch with the frailty and the anxiety and the insecurity that I think all of us. Another thing I want us to notice real quickly about Peter is that Peter's audience was an unlikely one for him. So in the New Testament, we see a sort of mission developing amongst the early apostles, specifically the two sort of most prominent apostles, Peter and Paul, who comes on the scene around Acts chapter 8 and 9. And Peter is, is designated really by the Holy Spirit and the, and the church as the apostle to the Jewish people. So he's wanting to preach the gospel specifically to the ethnic group people, God's Old Testament people, the Jews. And Peter, and I'm sorry, Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. But here we see that Peter is writing a letter not to ethnic Jews, but he is writing this letter, First Peter, which was written primarily to Gentiles. It's Gentile converts that are scattered across these provinces—Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia—in modern-day Turkey. And just notice here that that even though Peter's primary mission was to the Jew, three decades later, now after the resurrection, he is writing primarily to Gentiles who've converted to Christianity and are living scattered here. And the reason that this is so unlikely is that Peter was an apostle to to the Jews. And in fact, he had some problems with the Jew Gentile mixture. We see Paul confronting him in Galatians chapter 2. And Peter evidently would would be fine with sort of shucking it up with the Gentiles, you know, and eating bacon with them, but anytime some Jews came onto the scene, Peter would withdraw and would sort of have a sort of hypocritical view of the standards of being a Christian, and Paul called him on it. Peter was a zealous Jew, but yet God brought him all along in these 30 years that he is the one, even though this wasn't his primary mission, he's writing to these Gentiles. So just a few points of application here as we look at these two things about Peter is one, his friends, where you are today does not have to be where you are tomorrow in the Lord thank God for this. Peter's a great example of this. The Christian life is full of little and gradual moments of growth, moments of confrontation by loving friends, moments of conviction by the Holy Spirit, moments of wrestling with sin, moments of repentance, and moments of moving forward. And we don't necessarily appreciate that, do we? Because in sort of the internet culture, we like the the huge stories of great leaps of faith and we tend to think that if i don't have a testimony that speaks about some miraculous huge thing then you know do i really am i really you know growing as a christian when in reality the peter that we're encountering in first peter that we'll read about is the peter 30 years after all of these situations that we went through in the gospel of mark and his growth was gradual and small moments of confrontation and conviction and wrestling with sin. Friends, this applies not just to Peter, it applies to to you and me. I even think of my own life. 20 years ago, in the summer of 1993, being stationed as a young lieutenant at Fort Benning, going through a lot of the training that a lot of these young guys are, and I can think about where I was with the Lord. I can think about the things that I was doing and the pursuits that I was involved in. If you would have told me, 20 years ago when I drove and reported into Fort Benning, Georgia that I would be planting and pastoring a church in this city, friends, I would have looked at you like you were from Jupiter. God has a way of, over the course of time gradually through a thousand little decisions changing us. I see stories of grace even in this congregation just This week, Wayne was telling me about how he met with a young couple who is becoming members of this church, and they've been attending this church for a year, maybe a little over a year, and he was telling me about how when they came to this church, the husband was a Christian and the wife was not a Christian, and in fact, she was probably hostile to the gospel. But over the course of time, just hearing the gospel preached and taught and sung and read, And then being in a community group where a group of ladies in that community group came around her and just answered her questions and loved her, and just sort of in the organic everyday rhythms of life displayed the beauty of Jesus to her, she found herself witnessing to a friend about the gospel that she didn't think she believed, telling that friend, you need to believe this thing, and then realizing, oh my gosh, I believe this thing. And and Wayne was telling me the story, and my heart just leapt. Just God, over the course of time, changes people. I I think about Jeremy and Samantha Orlich, and the first time that I met Jeremy, when he was a pencil-neck, skinny little punk, that sometimes I just wanted to slap. (laughs) And I think about how now he is the father of two children, and he's loving his wife well, and is being called to give his life away for the gospel on the other part of the world. And I think about his wife, Samantha, who I met. I remember for the first time when she first came to this church, when Terry Finney, who was her boss, as the principal of the middle school where she was teaching in Harris County, brought her to church. And I remember seeing the gospel take hold of Samantha's life, and now she's married to Jeremy, and now they have two children, and they're preparing to serve their life in a place where very few people know Jesus. Gradual, beautiful stories of God's grace. I think about Kwame the first time I saw Kwame. I can remember the first time we had lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever, some meal at Chick-fil-A. Certainly wasn't dinner, probably breakfast. And I can just remember seeing sort of the the beginning of clarity in the gospel and the wrestling with past sin and then to see over the course of time the gospel take root in his life. Friends, we, like Peter, are people with baggage, but God is kind and gracious and patient with Peter and with me and with with you. So where you are today does not have to be where you are tomorrow. Just notice also briefly, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just notice that when the gospel truly takes root, it will produce cross-cultural fruit. When the gospel truly takes root like it did in Peter, he starts to love the Gentile that he hated 30 years before. You see, Peter was so wrapped up in this ethnic view of Jesus's mission to specifically his people, the ethnic Jews, and now he is calling the Gentile readers of his letter, three decades later, he's calling them exiles of the dispersion, which is language that would harken back to the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament the Jews, and Peter is using Old Testament language to describe the New Testament Gentile because the gospel has melted his heart for people not like himself. And when the gospel took root in Peter's life, it bore cross-cultural fruit in his ministry. What does that look like in your life? I'm not just talking ethnically, friends, because there are bigger gaps between people in this room than just skin color. There's cultural gaps. There's geographical gaps between us, and there's something beautiful that happens when the gospel takes root in our life. It bears cross-cultural fruit. Well, let's keep going. So there's a couple things about Peter that I want us to notice as we begin. Now, a couple things that I want us to notice about the Christian life. He says there in the second half of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia, Capitano. Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter calls his readers a very important phrase that we need to spend a little time thinking about. He calls these Gentile readers, elect exiles, What does he mean by that phrase? Specifically, what does he mean by this word elect? A few thoughts before we answer that that question. This word elect means that God has chosen these people. This word elect is often a source of conflict, but but I contend that it, it actually can and should be a source of great comfort for Christians. Now, the Bible is very clear that God elects or chooses people to be saved. I think all Christians should believe this because the Bible speaks of it quite often. And there's language that the Bible uses. The issue is, or the disagreement between Christians, is upon what basis does God choose them? Why does God choose them? And so let me just set out here, before we read some verses and think a little bit more about this question, that this is one of those issues that that Christians, I think it's okay for them to wrestle with and disagree with. And what I'm about to think about here and offer as how I believe the Bible teaches about this is, is what we call here at Crosspoint an open-handed truth. It means that this is a difficult thing to think about. It's, it's a huge and monumental truth that Christians for centuries have been wrestling with and at times disagreeing with each other about. And it is okay if you don't necessarily see it the way I do. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian certainly or that you're not a a mature Christian or that you can't thrive in this church. But as a pastor, I think it is my responsibility to work through words like this and to help you consider what they mean. So, the Bible often speaks about God choosing. That's what that word elect means, just to choose. What does the Bible mean when it says that I think all Christians can agree that God chooses or elects the issue is, or sometimes the disagreement is upon what basis does God choose people well let 's just establish the fact that this is not just here in first Peter but it 's all over the Bible. Romans chapter eight verses twenty eight and twenty nine very well known verse, at least verse twenty eight. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew—the same word that we see there—according to God's foreknowledge in First Peter, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. That's another word for elect, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We see this choosing language also in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us, verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then in his second letter to the Thessalonians Paul writes this in chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So I I want you to see there, and we could read many other verses that speak or use this language of God's choosing an election, is that this is a biblical term. So regardless of what you believe, even if you disagree with where I may stand on this issue. I want you to be able to own this word and this concept of God choosing because it's biblical language. So I think all Christians should be able to agree that God chooses. The issue is upon what basis does God choose us? Why does God choose people? And I think we get a clue to the answer of that even in the text that we're reading today. So let's go back to verse verse one, the second part there. He says that these people are elect exiles. Why? Verse two, According to or because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God has chosen them or he's elected them because of this foreknowledge of God the Father. So what does this word to foreknow mean? Well, in the Bible, oftentimes, this word know, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, can mean generally one of two things. That God would sort of know facts or a person would know facts. Or it would mean no in sort of like the biblical sense, like a, a, an intimate relationship. You know, like um, earmuffs for all of you young ones in here, like Adam knew his wife Eve. You don't need much explanation on that, do you? Okay, good. All right, good. So there's kind of two different, there's, there's a sort of knowing and general facts about, and then there's this knowing, there's this intimate Love and affection that goes beyond just knowing facts. And I think clearly this word here that Paul uses is the one that speaks about this affection that God loves us, that we are chosen by God because of God's foreknowing love, because of his eternal before-time affection. In the Old Testament, we see verses like in Amos where God says things like this. He says that in Amos chapter 3, you only have I known, speaking of Israel, of all the families of the earth. So he's not just saying that I only knew about you guys and I didn't know about the other people. He's saying out of everything that I know, I have this sort of special knowing, this affection that I've set on you before all the nations of the earth. And then, even within the chapter that we'll read in, if you go ahead to verse 20 of chapter 1, it says this, it uses this same word, just another form of the same word in verse 20, where Peter is talking about Jesus. It says that he, meaning Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, was foreknown, same word, different form, but same root word that we see in verse 2. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. And what is Peter saying there? He's not saying that God knew something about Jesus, some set of facts about him. It's that God, in eternity past, this Trinitarian love, God the Father set his love on the Son and he loved him because he loved him. And so I think what what Peter is saying to these people and he's saying to modern day readers of this is that if you are a Christian, it's not because God judged you worthy or better than or smarter than or stronger than anybody else. It's because he loved you before time began because he loved you. I just, regardless of what you think about this doctrine of election, I want you to grab a hold of that and own it. That, that, that God, if you are a Christian, God loves you. And we'll read next week how he causes us to be born again before we're even born. That God loves you because he loves you, not because you're smarter than anybody else. So, three quick truths about the Christian life. Christian life begins before time with the foreknowing love of God the Father. Friends, if, if you're a Christian today, if you love God, it is because He first loved you. That great hymn, And Can It Be, that we sing often here, there's this beautiful line in there where it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, God has loved us from before time and has set his saving love on us. A quote from Charles Spurgeon. I don't have it on the screen, but just listen to this telling of Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the great London pastor back in the 1800s, tells of how he came to Christ. And just think about Think with me and listen to Spurgeon's thought about how he came to Christ, how his salvation is owed to nothing but God's prior work in him. He writes this, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge, though having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. Listen to this now. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. I hope that's not the case with you. But the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, listen to this. Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. So the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Friends, why do I belabor that point? Because one of the things, in fact, fact, I think the primary thing that Peter is trying to do for his readers and for us is to root them deep in the origins of their salvation so that when the trials come, they can withstand them. Because if his readers and if we today think that our salvation began with us, then, friends, it might end with us. But Peter says, no, it began before time in the foreknowing affection of God the Father. Therefore, your salvation, weary Christian, is not yours to lose. As we'll read next week, it is kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And he's wanting to root us not in controversy, but in comfort, and confidence. So whatever you believe about that difficult doctrine, friends, I plead with you to believe this that the glory for your salvation is God's alone, and He has rooted you deep in his heart and in his mind before the foundations of the earth and has set his saving fatherly affection on you and then in time has caused you to willingly respond to the gospel and exercise faith and repentance and trust in Jesus so that you might be his forever. And friends, I think we need that. We need to wrestle with that and own that for the sake of our withstanding the storm of life. So the Christian life begins before time with the foreknowing love of God the Father. Secondly, real quick, things we see about the Christian life. It is a sojourn on earth because heaven is our home. Notice what he calls these people. He calls them elect what? Elect homesteaders? No. He calls them elect exiles. This word exile is not a social status, but a spiritual one. It refers to their temporary spiritual status as sojourners, as passers through here in this life. He is telling them that this world is not their home. So these 70 or 80 or 90 years or whatever it is that God gives us here is not ultimately life. In fact, we even, I think, even trick ourselves when we call death what comes after death, afterlife. It's actually the beginning of eternal life, isn't it? Death is just a passageway into the beginning of eternal life. Now, friends, Paul is wanting to show these people, and we'll see as we read these five chapters, that this world, this life, the things of this life, the futile ways that previously described our life are not what truly matters, that that heaven is our home and our true life, our salvation, as we'll read next week, is kept in heaven for us, and it is a salvation that waits to be fully realized on that day. Now, confession, and this may trouble some of you, but uh, it is what it is. I confess that I cognitively and doctrinally and spiritually believe in eternity in heaven, but I don't nearly as much, like, experientially believe that because I white-knuckle this world, don't you too sometimes? Come on, somebody else, just give me mercy. Just make the preacher not feel like a complete hypocrite up here. I mean I white knuckle this world. Right? I mean just just saunter up next to me. Any discussion I'm having with my kids about their grades or their development or the growth of this church or anything that sort of it's any sort of metric or measuring stick about this life. And and in some little little crevice of my heart there'll still be some anxiety, you know, like like I've got to I've got, to, I've got to perform. I, you know, these 80 years, man, I, I, it's all about now. And, and there's something otherworldly that Peter is pointing us to. He's wanting to tell us that we are sojourners and exiles. Well, I'm belaboring the point. I think you have the idea, finally. Quickly, the last point on the Christian life is that it exists for obedience to Jesus Christ. So remember what he says there. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So we are saved, not so that we can raise our hand at an altar call and go through the membership process of a church and then just kind of continue to live the way we want to live. The Bible knows nothing of a confession of Christ without corresponding, increasing obedience to Jesus for the rest of our earthly life. This does not mean we instantly stop disobeying God. Look at Peter. But it does mean that our hearts have been made new. And the most fundamental thing about a Christian is that they have new desires, and they now start, to desire, and to obey God. Friends, that's why we don't really do kind of maybe the traditional sort of altar call environment here where we have people raise their hands and then just because you raised your hand, we sort of slap the Christian tag on you. Now, I'm not saying altar calls are not sometimes helpful things to do, to call people to a decision. But friends... I beg of you to see this, you're not saved by your decision, you're saved by the foreknowing love of God, and if you're truly saved, then it will begin to manifest itself in a life that wants to obey increasingly Jesus. Do you see that? So how, how do we know we're Christians? By our love, by our fruit, by, by, by whether or not the root of grace is bearing some fruit in our lives. Decision, yes, we must make them. You must turn from sin. You must repent. But friends, we know that that has taken root in our lives over the course of time as we begin to love Jesus more. So a few points of application from these three things. Christian, your assurance is grounded in God, not in you. Secondly, this world is broken and can never satisfy us, so we should stop looking to it for our satisfaction. And thirdly, about we exist to obey Jesus. Does my life characterize obedience to Jesus? Does yours? It should if you're a Christian. If it doesn't, maybe maybe you truly need to come to Christ even today. All right, let me finish with this. I want us to see the beautiful work of the Trinity and salvation. So notice in verse 2 it says that we are Christians according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And notice that last phrase, and for sprinkling with his blood. So how does God in time make us Christians? God comes to us in our state as sinners. He comes to a broken and rebellious congregation, a re- broken and rebellious creation And he comes in the form of Jesus, God, the son, God, the man. And he lives a perfect life where we have disobeyed. He completely obeyed all of God's holiness and righteousness and laws. And he lays down his life on the cross and spills. He sprinkles his blood for us, for all those that would turn and trust in Jesus. And we see this beautiful work of the Trinity, even alluded to in these first few verses. So I want you to see this about the Trinity's work of salvation. I want us to stare at this and marvel at this in the coming weeks. Here's three quick phrases and then we'll end. The Trinity's work of salvation. The Father plans. The Son accomplishes. And the Spirit applies. The Father, before time began, sets his saving love on you. The Son, in time, comes and bears the wrath of God for our rebellion on the cross and rises from the grave in victory over sin and death. And then the Spirit sanctifies, that word means calls us out, calls us out, and and then applies and opens up our hearts so that we can see Jesus, the Father before time plans, the Son at the right time accomplishes, and the Spirit In our time and over time applies salvation. How great is our God. Well, this letter is written so that, as he says there at the end of verse 2, grace and peace would be multiplied to us. If you're a Christian, I want you to see the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of your salvation. If you're not a Christian, I want you to, I want your heart to be stirred and brought alive by the glorious truth of a God who is able to save even a person like you with baggage for his glory and your joy. Look to him even now and trust in Jesus. If you want to speak more about this, the pastors will be down front after the end of the service to speak with you about what it means to be a Christian And as we stare at the beautiful work of God and his people over these coming weeks, friends, if you are not believing and trusting in Jesus, do not get through this service even without talking to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. As I said, the pastors, after we receive communion, will be down front to talk with you as long as you need about what it means to trust in Christ. Well, friends, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion as we do in the first Sunday of every month. If you are a believer in Jesus, whether or not you're a member of this church, if you are a believer in Jesus as part of another church that believes this same gospel, you are welcome to come to this table with us. This table contains these elements, this bread that represents Jesus's body that was broken for us and his blood that represents his blood that was sprinkled, as our text said, was spilled for us. As we take these elements, we are remembering what Jesus has done in time for our salvation that has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. If you are not a Christian, you should not partake in this meal, not because we want to be exclusionary, but because we don't want you to proclaim something that you don't yet believe. Because that's what we're doing as a faith family, as Christians. We are proclaiming, we're remembering and proclaiming that we are trusting in Christ. And so we don't want you to proclaim that if you're not trusting in Christ, but we're very grateful that you're here and we want to answer any questions that you have about what Jesus has done, about the gospel, about the Bible. And you are free to just stay in your seats as people are filing out to receive communion, receive the elements. You're free to just stay in your seats and know that you're loved by people in this room and we're grateful that you're here. But in just a moment, as the worship team leads us, we as Christians are going to remember this beautiful work of the Trinity on the cross. Let it not be rote tradition. Let's stare into the beautiful face of God as we remember Jesus' work on the cross. Ushers, if you would come and prepare to service, and you can just go to the table that is closest to you after I pray in just a moment. You can just go to the table that is closest to you. And hold on to the elements, and then Wayne will lead us in a time. Well, let's all stand and pray. Lord, as we come to you now, after having looked at these verses in 1 Peter, that encourage us, Lord willing, That you are mighty to save even basket cases like Peter and us. And that salvation isn't just some sort of impersonal transaction or a mere saving from judgment, but it is the love and affection of a Father who has planned and called us out. Lord, warm our hearts with the beauty of your love for us. Let that beauty stir the hearts of people that are already your children and let the beauty of that fatherly love melt the heart of the sinner in this room who is not yet trusted in Jesus. God, would you do that? And Father, as we come around your table, I pray that we would remember Jesus Christ and that we would examine ourselves in light of him. That we were sprinkled with his blood. That we were foreknown by you. That we were set apart by the Holy Spirit for joyful obedience to Jesus. Remind us of that today as we take this bread and this cup.